Welcome to our two-year anniversary edition of Pharmarama. We're here to bring you stories from farmers and growers around the UK. We want to get stuck into uncovering the nitty-gritty of producing. Things like soil experiments, choosing different seed varieties, and exploring sustainable or resilient food systems. Just generally sharing cool and honest projects and ideas going on in food and farming from the UK and beyond. And we'd like you all to be involved. We hope to speak to a lot of you in the coming months and provide a place where people involved in farming, on whatever scale, can share stories, hear the latest developments, and come together as a community. You may recognise that intro. It was from our first episode all the way back in 2015. We feel those words are as true today as they were then. I want to say thank you for listening, contributing, and making Farmerama a great project to be part of. This month, we get the lowdown on six simple principles for soil health. We hear from small and smelly friends working away under the ground to support farmers. From potato growers in the Netherlands, and from a travelling cheesemaker on their research into native dairy breeds. And so, on to soils we go, and another report from the soil hack gathering we were at last month. Soil health and tree expert Niels Caulfield shared with us the six soil health principles that can help anyone working on the land, at any scale, to make soil-friendly management decisions. Niels is interested in sustainable living, and this drew him to food production before taking the next logical step and becoming fascinated by soils, which are, of course, at the core of all of this. So the soil health principles are a great little tool, basically, to summarise some of the understanding or observations that scientists and regenerative farmers um, have been uncovering over the last few years and it's kind of a, a synthesis of some stuff that we already knew about like no-till for example but it kind of puts a little bit more meat on the bones as to why no-till for example is so important and what the significance of it is but it also fleshes it out and gives some more kind of like you know practical ways for farmers and growers to change the way they manage their land or to make decisions in a way that will improve the soil or leave the soil in a better way than it was when they started. Some people say there are five, some people say there are six, uh, but the six principles I am working with at the moment are number one, a living root in the soil whenever possible, number two, covered soil, number three, minimum disturbance or no-till, Number four, diversity in plantings or in rotations. Number five, microbes matter. Uh, so they have a significant role to play in all of those elements. And number six, eliminate the use of chemicals, uh, which is a bit of a no-brainer, basically. Um, soil health principles give us an opportunity to, for organic growers to improve their practices and move beyond tillage-based systems and it gives conventional growers opportunities to move towards organics but perhaps without taking on some of the baggage that that brings with it. 
Yeah, so the principles, ultimately, where their function really lies is as a way to, as a kind of compass, if you like, as a way to sort of set the direction of your operation or your journey, for example, and ultimately for you to test the different management choices that you make through the year, yeah? So ultimately, the more principles that your management decision um, fulfills, the more likely it will be to be selected or prioritised um, when it comes to intervening on the land. Yeah. So one of the systems that, or one of the ways that we work with it is to look at existing rotations, either horticulture or arable, for example, and then looking at carrying out a more detailed analysis of that. So you incorporate when you carry out your cultivations, when you carry out your first planting, second plantings, you know, so every single detail that's relevant in that in that cropping plan is is included on a on a on some kind of diagram. Uh, and then basically step by step, stage by stage, year by year, you critique each of those um, practices and look at opportunities to substitute uh, an activity or a management practice for a more beneficial one or one that fulfills more of the soil health principles. The road to success, I feel, is a combination of easy wins rather than a grand shift in, in management. And by taking that approach, I think year on year, you'll steadily improve your soil and reduce the issues you have with management and end up getting to where you want to go, but without taking on a lot of the risk that is associated with big shifts or big shake-ups. In a nutshell, the soil health principles work. Uh, I feel that there's a lot of, a lot of chat you know, from the academic sector and from the extension sector, and a lot of, a lot of it's, is fine, but actually it seems to me that, like, there's a, a growing body of evidence that suggests that the growers, the farmers that have applied the soil health principles the most rigorously are getting the best results, and there's a direct correlation between how dogged, doggedly people approach uh, their different management practices and the results that they get. Um, so it's it's not about being dogmatic. It's about being, about being dogged and unrelenting. And you will get there. Niels is running some courses about creating healthy soils, which are based on real working market gardens. Check out his Facebook page called Edible Cities for more. We are very excited to be supported by E5 Bakehouse. E5 Bakehouse is a bakery in East London. They mill their own grain, which is sourced locally, and they work with farmers to trial more diverse cereal mixes to use in their bread. We think what they're doing is a big part of the future of farming. So thank you. A few weeks ago, a small group of organic farmers from Britain went on a study tour to the Netherlands. Weed control was one of the big topics, as well as mechanical weeders and alternative rotations. The other big topic was blight in potatoes, which is as much a problem in the Netherlands as it is here in the UK. But 
Dutch growers and breeders are working on new ways forward. Marianne Lanzettel joined the farmers on their trip and reports for Farmerama. Potatoes are grown pretty much everywhere in Holland. They thrive on fertile, well-drained soil, and the land of the polders is just that. A polder is what the Dutch call the land that has been reclaimed from the sea. It's surrounded by dikes, crisscrossed by canals, it's mostly below sea level, and it is flat. Or, as one farmer put it, if you stand on a bucket, you can see tomorrow. Dawa Monsma is the director of NZ27, a rather prosaic name for a farm, but it stems from the time when the land was reclaimed from the sea in the 1970s. Swallows are exploring nesting spaces while we stand next to the potato crates stacked on the side of the barn. Organic farmers are no longer allowed to use copper against potato blight. 20, 30 years ago it was used and then they used very much copper on the same plot in a year. Then they spray 15 kilograms every time, every week. And they do that 12, 30 times. <laughs> no. That was, that was 20, 30 years ago, how, wow. how they use copper as fingers. Then, huh? But now we, we, uh, we, use, uh, we spray uh, maybe seven times and we use a half kilogram on one hectare. So when, when you count it all together, then you have maybe four or five kilograms total. And then in organic farming, you are once in a six year on the same plot. So where are we talking about? But we cannot explain that to the customer. Yeah, that's the situation in the Netherlands. We also have some problem with the retailers accepting the new blight-resistant varieties. Oh, that's the same in the Netherlands. But but, uh, last year we had it was a big issue in the Netherlands, and the whole growers sector is was together, and we say we we want to stop with with copper. But then we need more resistant varieties, yes. and we, we, we make an appoint, appointment about that. Yeah. But also we want to make an, an, an convenant with, with, uh, with the retailers. Yeah. Really, really because useful. when the blight is coming early, and we don't have dead potatoes, then they're buying potatoes from France, from Germany, yeah, yeah. from all the world around. But in all that other countries, there is allowed to use copper. Yeah, yeah. So then we do not have potatoes, and the consumer is eating organic potatoes, mm-hmm still used with, co- with copper. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In 2022, then we do not use copper anymore. No. And we're still talking about uh, using it as, as a fertilizer. And then? Then we have enough uh, varieties what is resistant. And this is a, a dream or is it a reality? I think it's a dream. Mm-hmm. Oh. I, <laughs> but they're working on it, that's, that's good. Okay. And that's, that's the first thing what we have to do. On another farm some 40 kilometers to the northeast, one farmer has been doing just that. Nick Voss and his wife Josine have been farming not just organically, but according to biodynamic principles from the start. For a few years now, daughter Lisa Laura has been in charge of the everyday running of the farm, which leaves her father more time to concentrate on breeding potatoes, which, his wife says, are his other love in life. Nick has never applied copper to his potatoes. To him, it was all about careful selection and patience. And seven years ago, the Bionica potato was officially recognized as a variety by the EU's Community Plant Variety Office.
but it's a potato with white flesh and that makes it less attractive to consumers who consider yellow potatoes to be tastier. Last year, organic shops did consumer tests, says Lisa Laura, and in particular younger consumers wanted tasty potatoes that are floury or waxy, depending on what they want to use them for. Only some older customers asked specifically for certain varieties. And her father has already bred another blight-resistant potato, this time with yellow flesh and ideal for making chips. The Sevilla potato will get recognition as a new variety probably as early as next year. And a big producer of chips has already started tests. Sevilla is a hardy variety that does well even under drought conditions. The drought resistance became apparent when Nick asked a Spanish grower near Sevilla to test them. Despite the lack of rain that summer, the yields were excellent. And as the first potatoes to arrive from South America in the 16th century came to Sevilla, Nick decided to name the new variety after the Spanish city. When he started out breeding blight-resistant potatoes 30 years ago, Nick was pretty much on his own. But as the use of copper will not be allowed much longer, interest among growers and processors is increasing. To him, breeding is all about patiently observing plants, being aware of subtle changes and being in tune with nature. And that is a central aspect of biodynamic agriculture, explains Lisa Laura. If you look at a plant or an animal, it's, it's, a, it's a mirror of its uh, surroundings. The surroundings are different levels, I think. The first level is the soil. That's what we can do with, a f with as our farm. We can put things in. We can try to make the soil the best best there is for the for the plant. But you also got the surroundings, and that like the bees, the the the, uh, the pools, the the flowers around uh, the acres, and stuff like that. And also biodynamic is more up, uh, yeah, the whole sky, the all the planets, the cosmos, the cosmos, exactly. And the cosmos also have an influence on our lives here. You can see it for an example, the um, the moon gives us the tides. Well, and, and, and a plant consists for 80% of, of, of water. So there must be also a certain, uh, yeah, how do you call it? Of an ebb and flow. Yeah, yeah, mm. there, there must be something as well. Only maybe very, very subtle, but only to think of things like that. I think that's very important as a biodynamic uh, grower. What most important is don't think we can um, do anything because we are the humans and we know what to do. Because just open for the other things and see what's going on, and to look at at your crop and to uh, to feel it and to don't think you can influence everything. A hundred years ago, this was below sea level. Yeah, this is reclaimed land. Do you think the tide being so important as a cosmic force? Yeah, yeah. Maybe we feel it even more here because it was uh, so recently uh, sea. Yeah, a good one. Didn't didn't thought of that one, but yeah. Earlier this month, we headed to the National Organic Combinable Crops event, organized by organic farmers and growers. It was a brilliant day, and we created a special podcast about the event, covering relay cropping, companion cropping, and seed breeding, plus growing wheat populations. And you can find that special episode on our website, or wherever you normally listen to our podcast. A first from Farmerama now as we hear from a researcher and farmer in Wales. 
She tells us about a rather intriguing creature working hard beneath our feet, the dung beetle. I'm Dr Sarah Bainan and I run the Bug Farm, or Dr Bainan's Bug Farm, in St David's in West Wales. And the Bug Farm is my way of running an academic research centre, first and foremost. And that research is looking at how we can farm viably, but look after wildlife at the same time. And off the back of the, um, the research centre, we've got a working farm, so we can put our research into practice on our 100-acre farm. And then we're a visitor attraction. Uh, so we have a tropical bug zoo, um, a museum, a farm trail, art gallery, up-close sessions where you can meet Dave, the giant Madagascan hissing cockroach, um, and learn all about the fact he's got brains in every single leg as well as his head. And what, we, what we're doing at the bug farm is really a very rounded picture of, of conservation through research, innovation and education. So in the UK, we've got dung beetles that do different things within a dung pad. We've got our tunnellers. So they're, the more, they're kind of the big-bodied dung beetles, and they physically shift dung down into the soil. They dig tunnels down up to two metres in depth, and then they dig side branches of those tunnels as well, and they pack them with dung. We call them dung sausages. And by doing that, they're pulling free fertiliser down into the ground. Um, then when their eggs hatch into larvae, the larvae will eat the dung around them and they poo out a liquid fertiliser. So they're, they're processing that dung underground where the plant roots are. So the tunnellers are really, really important, especially in helping water infiltrate into the ground and aerate our soils. We've then got the dwellers and the dwellers live within the dung pad. So dweller dung beetles are smaller and they will, as adults, move within the dung creating tunnels. They'll quite often lay their eggs in the dung as well. Those eggs will hatch into larvae. The larvae then eat the dung in situ, whereas the adults feed, filter feed on the dung. And by doing that, they physically break up a dung pad, so it's more susceptible to weathering and more susceptible to earthworms being able to go into So dung beetles are some of the most important insects in breaking down dung. So if it weren't for dung beetles and other invertebrates, then possibly 4.8% of our permanent pasture area in the UK could be covered in dung each year. Because dung packs, they just sit there. If nothing breaks them down, they just go rock hard and they stay there for up to a year. They also, by burying the dung, they reduce the dung pat uh, as a habitat for pest flies, so they can reduce pest fly numbers. They can actually increase livestock internal parasite control, um, the gastrointestinal nematodes, the worms in a, a livestock's um, uh, stomachs. They can, they can actually reduce the numbers of those on pasture. They can reduce greenhouse gas emissions from livestock by burying dung. All of these different ecosystem services they deliver, they're all quantifiable services that save us as farmers money. And that's what we wanted to do. So we tried to put an economic value on how much money dung beetles could save the UK cattle industry each year. We only looked at four services that they, that they deliver, and it came up that they can save us £367 million per year. And so we actually looked at if you don't use chemicals that are toxic to dung beetles during the main grazing season. How much extra money could that save us? And we worked out that if all farmers who were under entry-level agri-environment schemes in the UK took on that practice, it could save the UK cattle industry another £40 million per year. Um, so it's, it's highly viable to do that. What we now need to look at is from a farmer level, is it worth um, And I think us as farmers, we can make a huge difference if we take it on ourselves to look after our dung beetles. If this sparked your interest, we have an additional interview with Sarah on our SoundCloud page, where she goes into some more detail and talks about the overall value of invertebrates and how they are supporting farmers. 
Daphne Zeppos was a pioneer, a legendary figure in the US artisan cheese industry. When she was diagnosed with terminal cancer, she and her husband decided to establish an educational grant in her name. Every year, one American cheese professional receives this award and they travel to Europe to investigate a particular aspect of cheesemaking. Earlier this year, Sam Frank travelled across Europe visiting farmers and cheesemakers who have chosen to work with native dairy breeds. Dr. Paul Kinstedt, in his book, American Farmstead Cheese, his statement that really captured me and has stayed with me to this day is, you know, a really high quality cheese shop, they'll have like 40, 50, 100, 300 different kinds of cheese. And, you know, that just scratches the surface. And they're all just milk. It's just different versions of fermented milk that have all been crafted in so many different ways as a product of their environment, their, you know, their economic and social conditions, their climactic conditions. Like, it's just, it's kind of, it's crazy to see the varieties of cheeses out there and that they all have their own very specific history and anthropology and just a very unique story behind each one of them. So for me, it just continues to become more and more interesting the deeper I get into it. I've been interested in the topic of native breeds for a long time. In the United States, we have not very many, but we do have a few breeds that are unique to North America and that are recognized as North American breeds, and they were once used for dairying. And today, all of them are critically endangered of extinction, and uh, virtually no farmer would ever try to milk these animals on a commercial level. You can be as idealistic as you want to, but in the United States and you know pretty much anywhere, you're going to have a hard time convincing farmers to change a system that they're totally used to if you can't show them that they will you know, continue making the same, if not more, money. So I was hoping to travel around Europe to learn how they have continued to conserve their breeds to make cheese to see perhaps if the American artisan cheese industry could have an impact on preserving our own native breeds. I started my trip in Madrid. I actually visited a, a small goat cheese producer right outside of Madrid, so I branched out from the cows a little bit. The numbers of this particular breed have declined quite a bit, and this guy was the only person producing cheese from their milk. Then I spent two weeks on a sheep dairy farm in the Basque country in northern Spain, uh, where they're milking this breed, the Lacha sheep, which is very traditional in the Basque region. And they've actually done a really great job of conserving this breed there. After that, I went to Sicily for two weeks. Um, I was primarily around Ragusa in the south of Sicily, and I was learning mostly about the production of a, this hard-aged pasta filata-style cheese called Ragusano and the Modicana cow, which is the only dairy breed native to Sicily. Then after that, I traveled to northern Italy to Reggio Emilia, which is where Parmigiano Reggiano is originally from. And I was visiting the Vaca Rosa Consortium. And so the Vaca Rosa just means red cow. And this is the old native breed from that part of Italy that was originally responsible for the production of Parmigiano Reggiano. And then I went up to Switzerland. There I was mostly focused on the Simmental cow. After Switzerland, I traveled to Ireland. I visited two different dairy farms. Neither of them are cheesemakers, but both of them work with traditional Irish breeds, uh, specifically the Kerry cow and the Drimmen cow. My last stop in Ireland was a, a very small cheese producer with 10 Irish moiled cows. And this guy is the only person that is both commercially milking them and commercially producing cheese from their milk. 
Then after that, I traveled here to Scotland. And my first visit was to a cheese producer in Ayrshire. I wanted to learn about the Ayrshire breed cow. They're not incredibly common, but you can find farms and a couple of cheese producers that are milking Ayrshire cows in the United States. So I was kind of curious to learn about how they've been able to spread throughout the world. I also traveled to the south of England uh, as a kind of a last minute decision. I learned about a cow called the Old Gloucester. There's one man in, in Gloucestershire, England, who is milking Gloucester cows and making single and double Gloucester cheese exclusively from the milk of his old Gloucester cows. And then tomorrow, I will be going to my last stop on my journey, which is in Yorkshire, to visit a man that is uh, trying to build a commercial milking herd of the Northern Dairy Shorthorn breed and revive the old world recipe for Winsleydale. One of the most memorable quotes, I suppose, actually came very recently from Trisha, who's the owner of Barway's Dairy in Ayrshire. We were specifically talking about Ayrshire cows, but what she said was spot on, I think, for any native dairy breed. Her quote, I believe, was, it's really a struggle between the traditional old cow and the onslaught of the Holstein cow. And that is exactly what I've seen throughout this entire trip, and which was very surprising to me because in my original vision for this grant, uh, I was very, very idealistic and I was expecting to travel to Europe to see these wonderful conservation efforts that have been made for all of these breeds and that they would be, you know, in great, great numbers, increasing, you know, a lot of pride in their, you know, respective regions for the people that are continuing to work with these animals. And unfortunately, the reality of what I've seen is that the numbers for each breed that I visited in each place have declined significantly. Some there's maybe a few thousand, some there's maybe only a couple hundred. I was quite surprised to learn that even here in Europe, where there is such a history for cheese production and dairy farming, it appears that the native dairy breeds are all on their way towards extinction, or you know, at least very critically endangered. There was kind of a consistent theme among all of the, the farmers that I visited. One was just, you know, it's national pride in a way, that these are the animals that are of their homeland, of their home country. That's an interesting thing that I don't think you would find so much in the United States. But then they all, no matter where I was, they all claimed that their breed was far more robust than the Holstein Frisian. They require very little medical attention. They can survive very well and produce very high quality milk off of the local available forage. They calve very easily, so they don't require, you know, much human help and they'll live a long life. You can have a cow that will calve 14 or 15 times. So you'll get, you know, 15 years of milk production out of them versus, you know, three, four or five years. And every producer that I visited everywhere I went, they all named these reasons for why they keep these cows. My main takeaway from all of this is that we are currently in a very critical state of emergency, in my opinion, with native dairy breeds all across the world. And without significant efforts being made to conserve these breeds, they will go extinct. And once they have gone extinct, they are gone forever. Society is kind of generally becoming aware of the problems with you know, monoculture and agriculture. So for all of the dairy production in the world to be coming from this one very specific breed is a problem. But on top of that, when these breeds go extinct, and many of them already have, when they go extinct, that's a loss of hundreds you know, of years, if not millennia, of 
working an animal on your landscape and making it, you know, thrive on your particular landscape. And so it's, it's centuries of agricultural history that are lost. And it's also kind of, you know, your agricultural and gastronomic history and culture that's totally lost as well. My, my main goal, I guess, at this point with my presentation to the American Cheese Society is to really bring about awareness about this issue because, you know, it's something I've been interested in for a long time. But in my close to a decade in this industry, there's just there's very little talk at all about breeds in general. And especially there's, there's really no talk on native breeds and their current status as all being critically endangered. So if at the very, very least, if I can just make this a topic that people are talking about and are concerned about, then I think I will have, you know, I will have done my job as a Daphne Zappos Teaching Award recipient. The whole idea, too, is that you will continue teaching whatever you've learned wherever you go uh, throughout your cheese endeavors. This brings us to the end of our 24th episode. Abby, what are some of your favorite memories from the from the time? Yeah, well, I feel kind of emotional. Just kind of, I guess, over, overwhelmed with warmth and thanks. Well, I do always think back to the very first episode and all the support we got from the Community Supported Agriculture Network at that event. Ben Raskin's guitar playing. <laughs> you may have been able to tell that I really enjoyed discussing beauty with Fiona Reynolds, Dame Fiona Reynolds, earlier this year as well. I guess it's just about hearing voices from the void. I really love that as well, when someone just sends something in and, and this uh, voice appears in our ears and it's a wonderful story, a really human story. Um, and it just always feels full of honesty and integrity. And that's just a great way to share contributions to the future of farming. When we started, this was you and me and Nigel. And we very much thought that we would be doing this on our own all the way through. But I think we've had well over 100 people contributing. And I, I would say probably 20 people who are regularly in touch with us sending stuff in and and helping in one way or another mm -hmm. and I guess what's exciting is the reason we're all doing it is because we all recognize the importance of the earth and producing or producing things from the earth at the same time and how can we make that work for people planet and have profitable businesses um, if you're listening and you are interested in getting involved, then there's always space for you. Uh, we'd love to work with you. What are your favourite moments from the shows? I guess a, a favourite moment for me would be when we went to the We Feed the Planet event in Italy and just saw thousands of young farmers coming together to like share knowledge and party but there was a, it was a real like coming together of really focused, angry, determined energy. And I got an awful lot from that. And it was just very clear that so many people around the world are dealing with and committed to solving so many of the same problems. Totally agree with that. 
Another great thing for me was was going down. We went into recording on Nigel's farm, um, and we lay in the wet hay, like on our backs, while Michael, who's one of the two people who's contributed guitar music to Farm Mama, thank you to Owen as well, uh, with like pregnant cows gently kind of lowing around us and there were calves running around and the sun was going down. It was a time that I felt that the energy of the farm and the life on the farm was really like in sync with with our presence in the world of farming. And that sounds over the top and it is over the top. It was a beautiful moment, the guitar playing with the cows and yeah, the setting sun, I agree. I remember it well too. And I guess I also just love all the smaller interactions as well. A big part of Farm Rama is, yeah, meeting people and hearing the exciting things they're doing or the risks they're taking, the experiments, and then being able to share that knowledge and that risk. I think otherwise it can be scary on your own. probably going to be scary anyway (laughs) this show was created by me joe barrett with abby rose and katie revel thanks so much to marianne for the additional reporting this week and to our supporters e5 bakehouse